Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. This week on the podcast, Jeremy N. Smith and I chat about his story, Always Only At Least, which he told live on stage at the Top Hat Lounge in Missoula, Montana, back in October 2014. Always start the onions before the garlic and the saute will ruin it. Only use Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, not just something called Parmesan. You know, soak uh, the zucchini at least 30 minutes to remove any impurities before trying to use a zucchini for anything. The theme that night was the things we carry. You know, if it's a trick with Marcello Hazan, and I'm like, I'm going to make the sauce, and it's going to take me a while. Why don't you guys make the pasta? It's a good thing if you've got a couple that's visiting, they're engaged. See if they could make pasta from scratch together. It's a really good relationship test. Thank you for joining me as I take you behind the scenes at Tell Us Something to meet the storytellers behind the stories. In each episode, I sit down with the Tell Us Something Storyteller alumni. You're in your own head, down on yourself, and someone can somehow put you to work. It's just hard to stay in your feelings when you're busy and when you're bodily busy and when you have a responsibility to these other people. We chat about what they've been up to lately and about their experience sharing their story live on stage. Sometimes we get extra details about their story and we always get to know them a little better. We will be in person for the first time since August 2021. We are running at 75% capacity, which allows for listeners to really spread out at the Wilma. Learn more and get your tickets at logjampresents.com. Last year and in 2020, when I was cutting these interviews together, the format was that I would play the interview, then play the storyteller's story. Jeremy, never having heard the new version of the Tell Us Something podcast, assumed that the order was the opposite, that I would play the story first and then play the interview. As I've been thinking about our conversation, I wonder if he's right. So I decided to try it that way. Jeremy shared his story in front of a live audience at the Top Hat Lounge in Missoula, Montana on October 9th, 2014. The theme was The Things We Carry. I traveled in Europe for a year after I graduated from college. And when I left to go on that trip, I had a backpack that I put two pairs of pants, two shirts, socks, underwear, toothbrush, and a tuxedo. Because my mother told me, you're going to Oxford, and in Oxford there are balls, and to balls one must wear a tuxedo. And she was right. Of all the places I was going, I was aimed toward Oxford, because my girlfriend had just uh, a few months earlier won a Rhodes Scholarship which is one of the top academic awards you can get. Like 30 people in the country get it, of all graduating seniors in college. And it pays for three years of graduate school at Oxford. All expenses paid. And so I had scrambled after she won that. We had dated long distance. We were not at the same college. We were thousands of miles apart. And we had dated long distance for four years, and I didn't want to stay long distance for seven years. So I just applied to anything and everything I could to get across the ocean. And I got a crazy scholarship, you won't believe it, but it paid me to travel in Europe for a year. (laughs) Poor me, poor me. Uh, There were requirements. I was not allowed to have a job or enroll in any institution of formal study. 
So uh, I land in London. Look it up. Henry Russell Shaw Fellowship. It was on my business card. Okay. Uh, I land in London. I take a bus to Oxford. I get there. She greets me. And she says, you know, I, I don't think we should live together. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we should necessarily, like, see each other that often. Uh, you know, we've done the long distance thing for so long. It's just a lot to go from, from almost nothing to everything. Okay. Um, and I check my email the next day, and I get a message from my friend Paul, who has just been fired from his job at a dot-com in San Francisco. And he is cel- celebrating, or if, you, if you call it that, he is using his entire severance package to throw a formal dinner party in Amsterdam. <laughs> my mother is a genius. Black tie. I take the train across England, through the Channel Tunnel, into France, Belgium, Amsterdam. 24 hours later, the entire time, of course, I've worn my tuxedo. Because, you, you know, you won't, don't want it to wrinkle. And I get there. Paul's at the train station on one of those big Dutch bikes. He says, get on the back, James Bond. We ride to his apartment, and uh, not his apartment, the apartment of a friend he was crashing in, and it is filled with like Noah's Ark worth of food. It's just every fancy, amazing cheese, meat, vegetable of every color, shape, size, whatever. And it's like five hours till, till dinner. And he says, you're making this, 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 and this. And he's bookmarked the pages in a book I have never cooked in my life. And I start looking. It's a book. I've never read a cookbook. It says Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan. It's got a, like a white-haired lady with a wooden spoon on the sort of side. Uh, and I start reading. And these three words, the, uh, it says always, only at least all the time in this book. Always start the onions before the garlic and the saute or you'll ruin it. Only use... Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, not just something called Parmesan. You know, uh, soak the, uh, the zucchini at least 30 minutes to remove any impurities before, before trying to use a zucchini for anything. Okay, uh, so recipe one is like a stuffed fin- spinach pasta with the ricotta cheese, ham. There's like nutmeg somewhere. Uh, charred, and it's 10 pages long, the recipe. Well, Paul's, I turn around, Paul's chopping, dicing, cooking, baking, whatever. Okay, so just step one, make the pasta. <laughs> Refer, you know, 30 pages, there's 30 pages of, in a different chapter how to make the pasta, and it's like, make the pasta. I mean, it's like, the start with the spinach, you get, I'm literally elbow deep with flour in just a few minutes beating the eggs in, and time passes. I'm immersed. People start coming in. Beers are cracked. Backs are slapped. People are calling me Sheffy. <laughs> I've got a, you know, an apron over my tuxedo. 
And I'm cooking this, that, and the other, and it's proceeding, and it's amazing. And at the very end, this dish is like, like a Yule log or something, and it's, it's wrapped in cheesecloth. At the very end, this pasta that's been stuffed with all these things, and then that's like dropped like Jacques Cousteau into this boiling water. And we took it up, and, you know, it's midnight when it's unfurled, and the steam, and the cheers. And I'm with friends, and it's a transformative moment. And I, I go back the next day. Party's over. And I get there, and my check-in with my girlfriend, and she feels the same way she felt before my transformative moment. She has not had a transformative moment. And so, okay, I've got this fellow. I'm actually going to travel on my traveling fellowship. And I hang up my tuxedo in her closet, and I take my, my backpack with my shirts and pants and shorts and toothbrush, and I go to the bookstore, and I get cla- uh, Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan, and I start carrying that instead of the tuxedo. I go to France, and I'm, you know, baking zucchini, and I go to Italy, and I'm making pizzas and, you know, spaghetti carbonara. I, you know, spend a, like, I meant to spend a week. The ferry gets wrecked with bad weather, and I'm, I'm stuck in the island of Santorini, the southernmost island of the Aegean Sea, for like three extra weeks with, with like three Argentinians. We're the only tourists on the island, and I'm making like osobuco, and, uh, and I'm telling stories from Marcella Hazan, Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan, and I'm telling people why they should never use a garlic press, and how, you know, if you don't have canned you know, imported San Marzano tomatoes, who are you? <laughs> and a year passes in this fashion, and I, I, at the end, I go home. And now I have a long-distance relationship, and we are very good at a long-distance relationship. And at the end of this summer that I've been home, we've been doing the email, okay, I'm going to go back. It's going to work. We've been fools. We're great together. I get a one-way, we're going to get an apartment together in Oxford. She's moving out of the dorms. I get a one-way ticket, and I, I fly across with my backpack. And I get there, and I land in London, I take the bus, and I get out, and she greets me, and she says, you know, I don't think this is a very good idea. (laughs) So I say, well, you're splitting the ticket home with me. (laughs) And putting our money together, we find a ticket that's, like, the first ticket we can afford is in a week. And I have a week in her apartment, Uh, and she goes to class. I watch TV, you know, I read, and I cook. And I've got all the time in the world. You know, I want an eggplant Parmesan sandwich. Okay, you know, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. It's 6 o'clock at night. You know, I just I take the eggplant. You know, I salt it. I bread it. You know, I saute it. I chop in the tomatoes. I'm getting the right cheeses. You know, it's midnight. Okay, I got that. It's pulling out of the oven. Okay, now I got to make the bread because I want a sandwich. You know, I get the olive oil. I get the flour. You know, always only at least kind of flour, of course. Uh, and I make the bread, and, you know, it's six in the morning. I got to let it cool, you know, at least half an hour. And, you know, I slice it, I eat it while watching television. It takes five minutes. And then I'm like, oh, what am I going to have for dessert? And that's the next 12 hours. So my girlfriend comes in last day, 
And I pull in like an olive oil bread, whole wheat olive oil bread out of the oven. She goes, oh, ooh, warm bread. You know, and she cuts it and puts butter on it. You're supposed to let it sit at least half an hour. Uh, but, but she doesn't know that. She doesn't do it. And, and I watched the butter melt, and I could say that that was my, my heart, right? Um, and, you know, that's not true, because here I am 13 years later. But, it, you know, it felt like that at the time. So, uh, you know, you can lose your backpack. And you can outgrow your tuxedo, and you can even have a cookbook that gets kind of worn to shreds. And you can't use that too much anymore. But, you know, I knew those recipes now. I had them with me. I would spent a year cooking them over and over and over. And... I could make them for new friends. I could make them for new girlfriends. I could make them for my eventual wife and now for our, our four-year-old daughter. And, you know, I think those are the most precious things we carry, the ones that, that are, you know, no one can take with us because we know them by heart. And I think they're the most delicious ones as well. Thank you. Jeremy N. Smith is a journalist, podcaster, and author of three acclaimed narrative nonfiction books, Breaking and Entering, Epic Measures, and Growing a Garden City. Jeremy has written for many outlets, including The Atlantic, Discover, Slate, and New York Times. He hosts the podcasts The Hacker Next Door, Stimulus and Response, with high-performance coach Damon Valentino, and You Must Know Everything, with his daughter Raza. Jeremy speaks frequently before diverse national audiences. Jeremy is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Montana and lives in Missoula, Montana. I caught up with Jeremy in August of 2020. Hey, Jeremy. Hello. Hey, Mark. Hey. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm surviving. Well, now you're getting all braggy on me. <laughs> editing out my laughter because it sounds so dumb on a on the podcast i think you're overthinking yeah i i I think this should be your new income stream you should pay people to add in laughter (laughs) like what what do i want to do i want to say these i want to say these jokes and you do laugh and then you know the listener is just like oh get get to one fight you the laugh. What is car talk? Do you listen? Do people listen to car talk for thirty years because of uh, the car advice, or because they just like the way the guys laugh? Oh, that's true. No, I think part of it is. Tell me what that sound was. Can you make that sound again? You know how they they ask the callers to make the sound of their cards. Jeremy and I sort of geeked out a little bit on car talk before we started talking about his podcast. That he does with his daughter, Rasa. You must know everything. He's nine, right? Yeah. Yeah, I listened to your marketing story with her and also the behind the scenes one today. Yeah, backstage. Yeah. Whose idea was it? Was it your idea to do that show? You must know everything? Or did Rasa suggest it? Or. So you must know everything is the concept I had years ago. 
when Rasa was born. And I had the life lesson that I wanted to impart to my child, but they would occur to me and she'd be like two years old, four years old, or six years old, or older, but nevertheless, maybe not in a receptive space or old enough to kind of, you know, get the e-lessons or they would occur to me when she was a school or daycare or whatever. So I kind of, kind of write them down and have like the big book of everything you need to know. You must know everything was sort of a joke. And I think I had an inkling of it. And I'd actually written up pieces and sort of shared them, you know, with a few friends and family, just little snippets. And she was like, well, when are you going to show me this book of everything I need? To, uh, you know, no, no, no. And, you know, I showed her a little piece once, but then in the pandemic, we're here, we're all together. And I was like, oh, you know what? I shouldn't write them down. I should just tell her. And I had to record it. And she's now old enough, enough time had passed that I was like, this is genius. I don't need to dumb it down or smart it up. I just need to just talk as if I'm talking to Rasta. And that's exactly the right level of intelligence for anyone. And also it'll just be much more heartfelt and direct and obvious and honest. Yeah, you know, that the audience is listening in on this, this really intimate conversation. And my real genius move was realizing it should go both ways. I have as much to learn from her as she does from me. So we trade off, as you noticed when you heard those three yeah. shows. All right. Every other episode, I'm the leader. And I'm like, here's the theory or the lesson or whatever I need to tell you. You need to know. And then the other is her telling me what I need to know. And by the same token, we have these other segments. And I, I don't know how those came up. They came organically the first time we did it. So we kept it where we read it, discuss the poem. And again, the person is the leader of that particular show. Discussion of the poem and the reading. And then we have, you know, the vexing question, the last segment of the show, where you can ask the other person anything, point up a lot of truth, but it's often sort of like, ah, you know, why are, why do we say a pair of pants, just one of them? Or, you know, when did the earth and the sun closest to each other? That one is the warmest or those unrelated to each other? Or, you know, how does a dandelion become, you know, go from a flower to that a spheroid thing, or how many people can fit socially distance, space six feet apart in the state of Montana. You know, whatever questions you have, uh, animal, vegetable, geopolitical, then, or, you know, I asked her, like, once I was like, how can I be nicer to myself? Like, I was like, I'm nice to you. You're nice to me. How can I be nice to you? Yeah, that was like an example of asking questions. So, Anyway, whoever the leader had to and then answer that specific question. So then you got to kind of pause and go, okay, dude, I've got to go figure out how a country officially changes its name, as is the case of the former country of Swazi. So you can get those two. So there's a sort of magic school bus, your science aspect of it too. And you, uh, you open that up to anybody, you know, you say, you can tell us 
what your vexing question is and we will answer it. You go to youmustknowEverything.com and there's the submit a vexing questions button. Right. And so that's my question is, it's not my vexing question. It's my just question about logistically, <laughs> are, are people utilizing that? Yeah, I'd say about one in every three we get from the audience. And I'd love there to be more. I think one challenge is, of course, our audience is family, but often if it's a kid with a vexing question, then seriously, I've kind of emailed. And that's one reason I did it via web form, so you don't have to email. You can just go to the website and type it in on the borrowed iPad or whatever. Right. Um, but, yeah. Wait, you would go? Well, I mean, you were on the tea green boat, and so that must have hopefully boosted your listener tip. Yeah. So we talked about the PGA boat is, you know, the children's programming on Montana public radio and we're there, you know, right a week. And sometimes then there's Saturday morning programming too. And what's cool about that is yeah, children's programming, but everyone of all ages of all demographics listens to that show. It has to have the most diverse client down. I've gotten so many texts from people that I'm like, I know you are an unmarried, unmarried childless, 53 year old dude I play basketball with, you know, and you're, you know, saying, Hey, I heard you have the P3 boat. So, you know, it's, it's got a wide, wide stance, the P3 boat. So I want to thank you right up front because you organized the very first live in-person storytelling event I had ever attended. You're at the magic of the peace farm, right? Yeah. It was, uh, eat our words. words. Yeah. And it was because well, of you that I was inspired to do this. Well, that's amazing. Just because I know how amazing the events you put it are, are, and how you've seen it grow and how much storytelling you've nurtured and just how the audience so moved. So be like i'm the father of the father of the father of all that pleasure in my own way for a lot of i'm like times removed from all their hard work and the stories but just that's that's inspiring to me because it means you can just do something that's kind of random and cool and you know you can do it three or four times and it can have the other effect so thank thank you and you're just never I say that to people all the time, like, you don't, you know the good you do, but you also like, how about the good you don't know that you do? Yeah. Follow up. Yeah. So, you know, back at your, I hope you're, you know, I know you're getting good feedback, but just whatever feedback you're getting, know that it, each of those people is speaking for so many other people. I know. And I just wanted to acknowledge the influence you had on the whole thing, but I still want to talk to you about the first story you told at the very first event, the theme was Dear Diary. It was December two, 2011. It was 70, 75 people in the Missoula Art Museum packed. Four, tell us something happened then. Deborah Magpie Erling had just read from her book, The Journals of Sex, and then we sort of pivoted into this other room and, and we had tell us something. And you closed out the night with this beautiful story about Anne Crosby. Yeah. 
So what can I tell you about that story? What did I, what did I not leave in the air? I mean, I said it all. I listened to it again for the first time since I heard it, because then at the time I was not the one editing the podcast. And so I, I listened to it again today and your, your ability to paint a picture of a person, you didn't even say that she was beautiful at first. You just talked about what the environment was like when you walked into a room and you saw her. Mm. If you go back and listen to it again, it's, it's beautiful. So thank you for telling it. I gave you no guidance at the time. I was just like, please do this. I respect you and I think you're great. Please help me. And you did. There was no workshopping or anything. How did you decide that was going to be the story? Well, I remember I I love to follow the prompt because I think that you find things from the prompt as opposed to thinking, this is the story I want to tell and I'll just make it work, whatever the prompt is. And I think also by telling something out loud or by just writing, the story does a lot of writing itself. And a good story, even though you're the one telling it, even though it happens to you, should have the ability to surprise And when you said to your diary, I had this vivid picture of really the first and practically only diary, you know, I had for most of my life. And it was like the fourth grade, fifth grade kind of diary. And I don't even know if it was, I've had the sort of fancy leather bound book where you take the strap and sort of, you know, curl it around to around the knob to close it and all that good kind of fancy diaries. But I feel like this was one of those like 80 day mead journals. But it was like I had to pull out like my first crust into this journal. And it was like, I remember even just so vividly just my outrage at like the crust of actual fourth grade boyfriend complaining that he had to like buy her a necklace. And me just being like, I got to just like going home and being like, this, you know, this guy doesn't understand anything. You know, this is the one, the only, the moon, the stars. And just, just sort of pouring that out into this journal. But then hilariously, I remember taking one of those like, uh, lock turner locks, master locks or whatever they're called. The, the like combination one where you spin it three times one way and then two times the other yep. way and one the other like that's like my gym locker lock and like putting that on the journal like through one of the three holes that was punched as if that was locking it which obviously that's not how locks work if you like put it through one of the three holes you could still just like open the book it might be hard to lie completely flat on a table and it's not like i thought that that was a security measure, but somehow that was like assigned to value. It's probably the only thing I like, but I don't think I actually locked my bike. I remember my bike got stolen. So, you know, the only thing I actually had a lot, my, my gym clothes, God bless somebody if they had stolen them. But like, I just remember this page, you know, 99 cent notebook. And that was the sort of diary. I just, so when you said diary, I just remembered that was. That was like the Dear Diary conversation I had. And I just remembered this kind of 
evolving relationship that I had with this crush and that ironically or rarely or whatever the word is, the world has with this crush. It's just so rare that like your crush is like everyone's crush. I think maybe it isn't because it's my experience, but like, you know, that's how I think I started that story where, you know, I'm at a sleepover and people are like, say who you like. And I'm excited because I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it out loud for the first time, the only time. And they're like, but you can't say her. Because it's because, duh, that's obvious. Um, I was like, oh, you know, I am a cliche. I didn't even do this thing. I've never even said out loud as a cliche. I have a crushed cliche. And that, that, that then even evolved to the point, as I said, you know, in high school, the yearbook company that makes yearbooks in Texas, right? Not not where I was from. Makes yearbooks, but all the yearbooks for all the high schools chose this photo, right? You know, as the photo, we're like getting a yearbook in America. So, you know, just kind of being like, oh, I'm not <laughs> maybe as being the person inside as, as I might have wanted to believe, like you want to in your sort of nobility of your process. But then, yeah, and then there was that turn in the last conversation we had, and in a way, the only conversation that was significant was, you know, after graduating college and seeing her again and kind of getting to know her as a person. And that, you know, transforming how I saw her and I guess how I saw seeing people. Do you know if she's heard the story? God, I hope not. It'd be so embarrassing. It'd be terrible. Uh, you know, I'd hate that. But, you know, it could happen. I have to live, I have to live with that possibility. I was so dumb. I should have, uh, I, I should have changed the name or I should tell you that I used to fake it. But, you know, my, my life is nice to work. We belong. But I would say, <laughs> you know, if, if I were Ann Crosby and I heard that story, I would feel so honored. Because you saw her yep. as a person, finally. After like a hundred years, but yeah, yeah, yeah. For all the within, sometimes it takes many lifetimes, right? Marilyn Monroe would still yeah. probably never been seen as a person, right. right? You know, I remember my grandmother but, talked about meeting Marilyn Monroe at a party once, and and she just said Marilyn Monroe wanted to talk about what she was reading. You know, you're just like, yeah, of course. Everybody's got a path. Just, everyone's got a path. No, no, it's good. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a romantic. <laughs> uh, I think a t- story is about someone going through things. No change, no story. You can have funny things happen, and you can have quirky incidents, but you have to like literally have your life change <laughs> as a result of what happens, and that could be internal, or it's not a story. And so. Yeah, of course you're going to have love and what happens after love or crushes and what happens after crush, right? Those are, yeah, those are one of the building blocks of the store. You're going to have travel, you're going to have tragedy, otherwise no change, no story. Right. You know, every time someone shares with me, I always feel like I need to share a story with them too, you know? 
to let them know that I get it, that I have a shared experience. And it sometimes veers into almost the non sequitur realm or gets way off track. Yeah, I did that here. I'm trying not to do that as much, and just recognizing that I do it is a good start. I'm working on it. Okay, when we pick up again here, we're talking about the second story that Jeremy told at Tell Us Something. Always, only, at least. And at the time when you told that story uh, about going to London, you made this reference of, like, don't use a garlic press. And (laughs) I was like... I was like, oh, God, I'm a jerk. I use a garlic bread. And, but I didn't know any better. And so then I immediately stopped using a garlic press and only bought uh, fresh garlic. Now I grow my own garlic. Yeah. Last year we had 400 plants that we harvested. Well, what's great about what Kel has done at Kirkwood Author is that the standards are only minimum. There are no, there's not satisfying her. There's just only being potentially acceptable. So, you know, that's what I kind of highlighted in my title of that story. You know, only <laughs> you can in the reported San Marzano tomato, right? You know, soak your cucumbers, not cucumbers, soak your zucchini, zucchini, my British edition. In my British edition, of course, they're called courgettes. Soak your zucchini for at least 30 minutes to remove impurity. You know, always, of course, till your garlic in a certain way. <laughs> You've got your order. And so I just think that there's actually something really relaxing about structure and discipline. It's someone who has this amazing vision. I remember our mutual friend, Jason Weiner, talking about perhaps another mutual friend, Bob Marshall of Pizza. And I was like, why is he such a good chef? And he's like, well, and Jason just said this offhand. It was a brilliant remark. He said, well, you know, all good chefs, all great chefs are creative control freaks. <laughs> and I love that combination, a creative control freak. And, you know, Marcello Hazan, certainly creative control freak. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of aspirational to do something that you would find acceptable. Sort of Mr. Miyagi of, you know, cookbook, Italian cookery. So, you know, by her actual nature, her actual personality, she could have been completely congenial and she looks very grandmotherly and very kindly, but knows the right way. And she's going to tell you to do it the right way. You'll do what you want to do tell you the right what you never said in the story which a thing that i took away from the story was that this opportunity to go to this party and your friend oh hi james bond you know he said to you he doesn't even acknowledge your your potential heartbreak that you're going through he just puts you to work and in service of others. I think it's such a gift. You're in your own head, down on yourself, if someone can somehow put you to work. It's just hard to stay in your feelings when you're busy and when you're bodily busy. 
And when you have a responsibility to these other people, you said they were my friends. They were not my friends. They were strangers. They were his friends. But, but right. Yeah, we had to have a dinner put on, and all of a sudden it was we. <laughs> it wasn't me in my own head. And so that was great. And I certainly tried to learn that where, you know, if people come to dinner, I love to make it an elaborate dinner, but if there's some way to kind of include them, like, yeah, why don't you bring the toppings <laughs> for the pizza? Or I've done that exact same trick. You know, if it's a trick with Marcello Hazan, and I'm like, I'm going to make the sauce, and it's going to take me a while. Why don't you guys make the pasta? It's a good thing if you've got a couple that's visiting, they're engaged. See if they can make pasta from scratch together. It's a really good relationship test. And it's <laughs> a story to tell, and then uh, you need it. You destroy the evidence. So... They kind of had to work it through. And I'm like, ah, oh, sorry, I'm busy. This is boring. And, you know, trying to ask questions and let them figure it out. It's a gift. I mean, it's one of the geniuses of like the youth harvest program at the peak farm. It's like, ah, you've got these, you know, quote unquote troubled teens that have been sentenced by youth court. Yeah, you could put them in juvenile detention. You could send them to put to the woods program or you can put them on a farm. And be like, we got to grow this because these people are going to come and they want to eat these carrots. And these people are actually housebound seniors or they're military veterans or they're other people in your community. So totally, I totally get you want to complain or you want to talk about your tattoo or you want to do this or that or talk about mom or dad or bitch. But like, you know, we, we just got to get the carrots first. Let's just do that. And then, you know, over the course of the season, I, I've seen that, you know, be transformative for people. And that was one of the subjects of my my first book, Growing Your Garden City, you know, with that program. So, you know, I feel that insight from Scott Blotnick and some of the other people that, you know, were behind the program. And in there's a You Must Know Everything episode called Dough, where I talk about my pizza dough recipe. And I share that with Rasa. And I'm like, these are 18 words that are best, shortest, fastest, most guaranteed way to win friends and influence people. And the 18 words are just the ingredients for the recipe. And I'm like, learn how to do this. And you can just go anywhere and be like, you can have no skills. You can have no talent. You can have nothing of it. You know, no one, but you say, I'm making pizza tonight. Do you want to come over? It's all going to change. <laughs> it's all going to come your way. So, you know, that's what I was kind of theory in that episode. So that's an example of kind of a crossover, I guess, between tell us something and you must know everything. So I have a hacker oh. one. That's an interview one. That's like uh, a limited series, like a spinoff from my book, Breaking and Entering, The Hacker Next Door, and it talks about 10 different hackers and 10 different kind of specialties of hacking and interviews them about kind of who they are, their background, and they're all hackers for good. They're all using their skill to protect people. Right. And that's that. But then I've been, you must know everything with Rasta. And I have this other one. 
that's very trippy and it's called stimulus and response. And it's with the high performance coach friend of mine. So he's super keyed in like elite athlete, CEO, he kind of group flow, high performance. And it's like, how can the rest of us get high performance mindset, exercise, tools, technique that the elite thrive? How can we kind of survive that? So it's not like do a million push-ups. It's like, here's a different way of looking at yourself or a breathing exercise or a visualization. So, you know, it's a podcast. I like to think of it not exclusively, but best enjoyed, you know, in a basement with a buddy, just kind of chilling out, feeling the feel. And we go to some super trippy places there. Very like yes and conversation. So... You know, a typical start of an episode would be like, think we're individual, separate, or are we all connected? And then like, what's the science? What are the visualizations? What are the techniques? You know, how can we kind of step through that? And that's been super fun to do. That's the only podcast I make that like I could listen to later with a certain amount of distance because it just has a certain intoxicating effect where it's, it's about kind of changing your mindset. So I guess then the next question is analytics. This is the thing that I struggle with so much. Do you pay attention to any of that? And if you do, how are you managing that? Right. So I assume by analytics, you mean like how many people are listening, downloads, audience size, and I guess things like retweets and mentions. Is that what you mean? Mostly, yeah. I mean, I think it's a total crucible unless it's huge, right? It's hard to not feel less than or not enough or want more. Especially if you're putting in so much time and getting value out of it. And I think, you know, to me, I've tried to have satisfaction on multiple levels. Intrinsically, ideally, can I be pursuing projects that I would do, no matter what? And also, if it's a new media for me, can I be learning? So either way, I'm kind of creating and it's also an internship. And also, if I want to get something that's really meaningful, is it meaningful to me if it's reaching? Jeremy cuts out a bit here. What he was saying was, is it meaningful to me if it's reaching a small number of people, but I feel like it could move the needle? You know, something like you must know everything. So heartwarming and life-affirming in a broad sense, I hope, that you go all to the that well, I can be sort of satisfied even if it's not really very well, for each person. And I guess the other one is it's about sort of mindset and transformation. And you really are and why we're really here, stimulus and response. 
in a similar way, I can be like, well, if I was in person and I was talking to 70 people, that's a good, that's a huge book event, you know? So yeah, it'd be great if it was 700 or 7,000 or 70,000 or 700,000 or 7 million, but can I kind of get right with it in those ways? And I go crazy and beat myself up and feel bad. And I think I have to recognize that's a separate discipline of like reaching audience and marketing promoting. I can pursue that discipline. And if I can get it on the its own term, but if I'm not succeeding on something I'm not doing, then I should at least recognize that of up building. I'm trying to do something meaningful where I'm learning important and rewarding. And if I'm also trying to gain audience, then let's do that. But don't let me beat myself up because I'm not getting all these other things out of it too. Yeah, my, my joke, I was saying to someone the other day, he was like, are you making money from that? Because I was like, well, dude, I know people that do it. And I know people that make money. I'm not. I'm still, you know, figuring it out, trying to learn from that. And my joke was like, yeah, I'm self-unemployed. So. Uh, what did you say? You know, you know, when you're the writer, it's like you range between self-employed and self-unemployed. Got it. And so my joke is, yeah, I'm self-unemployed. So yeah, I'm working all the time for myself for nothing. So that's a lot of, you know, it's that kind of hustle. And I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably one reason I appreciate that stimulus and response and the headspace it puts me in because it's about getting a bigger perspective. And right now that's so important. Right, right. Like we're in the steampunk post-apocalyptic future of like the sort of mix of high technology, local food and plague. And so, you know, it's not that surprising that, you know, we're not all sort of that media superstar or niche media superstar. I think that, you know, here's an example exercise that the performance coach co-host on Stimulus and Response had me do. He was like, you can do it with, with podcasting or tell us something. He's like, on one piece of paper, write down everything that you hate about writing. Like having to hustle, have to sell, what you don't get paid. No, the anxiety, da, da, da. So I could say like hosting a radio show, host, being a head of a nonprofit, all of the, the, the grind, having a podcast. And he's like, write that, write, write this, all the, all the, all the terrible things, all the things that are so annoying. So I was like, okay. So he thought about it and I did it a bit. And he's like, now flip the paper over. I'm like, okay. He's like, now write down all the things that you love about it. You know, what are all the amazing, the freedom, the creativity, the connection, the expression, discovery, for example, the unexpected, you know, uh, company you find, the camaraderie, 
the right fit knit, whatever you want to. So I was like, okay. So I was doing that and now I'm getting more excited, you know, it's more positive. And he's like, what do you know? And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, he told the Jedi mind trick me. I was like, they're on the screen, <laughs> the paper. They're on the paper, the paper. And that's really blowing my mind for three weeks. It's like, we think of these things as like, here's the good thing and just the bad thing. If we can have the good thing without the bad thing. But maybe there's not a good thing or bad thing. They're just together. They're just what it is. Like your strengths are the same as your weakness. You know, your weaknesses are the same as your strengths. These, it's all, all these kind of burdens and bothers are, are part of the boon and the benefit. And just the, yeah, it's really annoying to have the burdens and the bothers. But I think it's even worse to think like we're doing it wrong because we have them and we're failing because we have them. And that load of self-judgment, that's even more painful. It's like, you know, this is just the piece of, they're on the same piece of paper. I could do work on a totally different thing, but it'll have its own two pieces of paper. So anyway, I have that, you know, usually you, but. I mean, it's useful to me already. I'm, I've got a grin on my face bigger than I've had in a long time. And as soon as we hang up, I'm going to go subscribe to, to this new podcast that you've turned me on to. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Jeremy. And thank you for listening today. You can find the schedule for the Pea Green Boat and listen online at mtpr.org. For articles about the lost journals of Sacagawea, go to tellussomething.org. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersband.com. On the next Tell Us Something podcast, tune in to listen to Stephanie Hone's story, The Smartest Girl in Jail. I've just had unusual experiences or, you know, bad experiences that people would like to pretend aren't something happening in their community. So I kind of wanted to tell that just to be like, hey, just so you know, like this is, this is what's happening, you know, here. That's, this is what it's like for people. She shared her story at a Tell Us Something storytelling event back in 2012. Stick around after her story to hear her thoughts on it, as well as learn what she's been up to since COVID struck. To learn more about Tell Us Something, please visit tellussomething.org. 